here together proclaiming our love to you for one reason, and that is because you first loved us, and we need to look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ for proof. So as we continue to worship you in the word now, Lord, I pray that we would hear your voice say, come and meet with me, and that each heart in this place would say, I am coming. Speak to us. Your servants are listening. By the power of your Spirit and through the name of Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Please have a seat. Good morning again. I apologize. You guys are going to be tired of my voice by the end of this morning, but that's okay. You know, as Jesus was walking along the road with his disciples, he asked them a question. He said, so who, does, who do the people say that I am? In our vernacular for today, it might be, what are the people asking about faith? What are the tough questions the world is asking? And, and so they come up with some answers that some say Elijah and some say, the, um, some, some say Moses and some say the prophets. They're, they're kind of, they have all these worldly answers. And then, and then finally Peter says, and he turns to, to the, his, specifically to the 12, and he says, but who do you say that I am? Because that question is personal for all of us. You know, you're not saved in Christ because your family is Christian. You're saved because you have had an encounter with a Redeemer. And so he asks, and Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Peter gives him, or Jesus says, you know, good job, Peter, but that's because God revealed that to you. And then he says, you are Peter, and upon this rock, the profession of faith, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. He is telling us now, through that situation then, that we are to be on the offensive for the gospel. The gates of hell were, were in hell. It, it means take the gospel to the enemy, and when you get to a gate that you think is closed, trust my power to break it open. That's the power of the gospel. So what is this thing he is building his church on? It is that message. It is that message where the power is that he is the Christ, that he is the fulfillment of all the promises of God. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not an invitation as much as an announcement that God did what only God could do. He came here as a man and he died on a cross, a death he did not deserve, that we might live his life. I want to ask a question before we get to the question of the day. When did Peter, James, John, Paul, when did they become disciples? And the answer is when they started following Jesus. A disciple is just somebody who is following someone else. So they became disciples the minute they let their nets down and started following him. If you're a follower of Christ, you became a disciple maybe even before you got saved when someone handed you a Bible and said, read this. And you started looking into the life of Jesus Christ. When did they fulfill their role as a disciple? That's a different question than when did they become a disciple. I'm not talking about when did they get saved. Interestingly, Scripture is not real clear about like when Peter came to saving faith in Christ. But when did they fulfill their role as a disciple? It, it is when they made a disciple. It is when they, when, when will you ultimately, when did you ultimately fulfill your, God's call on your life? It is when you started pouring that into other people. It's funny how, and I've talked about this quite a bit over the first 
couple messages I taught in this series, that, that we have come to believe that becoming a Christian is sort of the end game in our faith walk. That, that once someone is saved, the stamp of approval is on them, and it's over. And I would say that that's certainly huge and powerful, but guys, becoming a Christian is not the end game for Jesus. Becoming a Christian is the beginning. It is just the beginning of the journey he has us on. It just gets better from there. And that's what this series is about. That's what we want to talk about today. So today's question is going to help us answer the tough questions that the world is asking. It could easily be kind of reworded to say, consider your calling. How do you see the world in God's light so that you can go take God's light to the world? We are not called, and I'm going to disappoint some of you because I'm not going to answer all of the, quest, the tough questions. And I'll tell you why in a minute. But guys, we're not called to argue with the world. We're called to share the gospel. Right? We're called to share the gospel. And that's part of why I'm not going to answer all of the tough questions today. What are people questioning when they, when they ask tough questions about God? Things like, why does evil and suffering exist? What are they ultimately questioning? They are questioning the character and nature of God. The answer isn't going to be to give them some human justifiable reason for evil and suffering. The answer is to show them the goodness of God and let him change their hearts. So I'm not going to attempt to answer all the questions today, not, not because I don't have time, although I don't, and I wouldn't want to take the time to answer all the tough questions because that's not what Sundays are about. We're, we're here to worship. And it's not because there aren't good answers. Guys, there are good answers to the tough questions. It's just that, and the toolkit, this section on the toolkit that you're going to go through this week is my semi-pathetic attempt to answer, to sort of answer four of the tough questions. So the answers are, are in there. But at the end of the section, at the end, and at the end of every section of the toolkit, there are some suggested readings and further study. So this week, it, look, it, it looks like this, and it talks about like the, these books at the beginning, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, Mere Christianity, The Case for Faith, The Case for Christ came out a little bit later. Um, those two, but those first two, for example, are books that people put in my hand as a God-mocking atheist. They didn't, they didn't lead me to Christ, but they showed, they started me on the journey of becoming a disciple of Christ. So there's, there are people out there that have much better answers than I do. But guys, here's ultimately, and I'm speaking from personal experience here, here's ultimately why I'm not going to take the time to, to, to even teach what's in the toolkit today. You have it in there, you can look at it this week, you can read those books. But guys, ultimately here's the big why about why we don't want to get bogged down in arguments about the tough questions. We will never get to the end of that argument with an unbeliever. When I was in high school and, and when, when those books were being put in my hand as an, as an atheist, I, my, my nickname among my teachers and coaches that were all Christians and, had, and started, were heavily involved in my life, they called me Pugnacious Doug. Pugnacious just means argumentative. It's because no matter what answer they gave me, I always had another argument. That, it is a bottomless pit to sit and argue with an unbeliever about the things of God. It doesn't mean we don't have answers. We are to give, we are to be prepared to give a defense for the hope that we have. There is a place for apologetics. Because we've got to quickly get off the argument and on to the gospel. Because that is the solution. Guys, that is the only answer we have. Guys, the only place, the world, what that, what, when people are engaging with us in these tough questions, they're looking for answers that are going to satisfy the hole in their heart. 
And we know that they will never find satisfaction until they find Jesus Christ. And so the only answer we can give them that is going to give them satisfaction is when we give them Jesus Christ. That's what we need to focus on. That's where our heart needs to be. That, and, and, and I will add to that thought, at Cornerstone, hopefully every gospel-proclaiming church has that idea, at Cornerstone, our heart, our specific kind of distinctive is not only do we believe that's true individually, that meaning we're to share the gospel, we're to, we're to give people Jesus. We believe there's a corporate piece of that too. It's what Daniel talked about. It's the in the one another's, the John 13, 35's, that the world looks and goes, whoa, wait a minute. Guys, our best argument against the tough questions is not some um, creative creed about truth. It is a culture that loves Jesus Christ. That is our greatest testimony. Our greatest testimony to the truth of Christ is not some concept we can conjure up. It is the community that God supernaturally is creating. And what I talked about quite a bit a couple weeks ago, and if you were not here for that, I would really encourage you to listen to that message online about what we believe the vision of the church is. It is a supernatural, unexplainable entity that in and of itself is God's attractional model for drawing all people to himself. It is why having just a Bible study in a home where everybody looks exactly the same is not the church. It is why a group of even benevolent, well-meaning people who are out serving the community because they all have the same interest is not the church. The church is a grand mess of spirit sealed, gifted people, fit together by that same spirit, that are together the body of Christ. That's what we want to be about here. So today's question, how do we help answer people's tough questions? How do we help answer people's tough questions? And our passage today is going to point to three ways. If you need a Bible, because we're going to be in the Bible today like we are every Sunday, raise your hand. Someone will put a Bible in there. If you don't own a Bible, put your name in that one and keep it, because we want you to have a Bible. But everybody, open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. One of the benefits of the toolkit and, and the daily readings in general is if if you're doing them, you've already read through this passage either last night or this morning to prepare your heart for worship this morning. And so we're going to be able to move through these points fairly rapidly because the Holy Spirit's already spoken to you about what they have to say. But the question is, how do we help people answer the tough questions? The answer is we pray. We pray that they would have eyes to see. We pray that they would have eyes to see. Look at 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word of the cross. What is the word of the cross? The word of the cross is Christ crucified. The word of the cross is the gospel. The word of the cross is God's fulfillment of all of his promises in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the world thinks that's foolish. And guys, I don't say that judging them. Because for the first 24 of my almost 50 years, I was them. They don't get it because they can't yet. 
because their eyes are not able to see it. They see it as foolishness. It makes no sense. And maybe you have forgotten when it didn't make sense to you. The word of the cross is simply what Paul says in Romans 1. I I mentioned it last week or two weeks ago. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. That is the word of the cross. That is the only message that will answer questions. And it is not what the world wants to hear. I get that. I do. That doesn't mean we're not supposed to share it. Do we see the world for who they are? Do we see them as blind? Do we look at the world that is out there that is, that is anti-Christian and say, Ugh! or do we go, of course they think that way. They can't think anything other than that until the gospel has been brought into their life. But I get ahead of myself, and we're going to talk more about that as well. Guys, remember this, because this is something that, that I forgot after I became a believer, which is strange considering how anti-God I was before and how gracious he was to not squash me like a, the bug I deserved to be squashed as. When Jesus goes to Jerusalem on his, before he enters the last time, do you remember what he did? He's on the other side of the Kidron Valley and he's looking out over Jerusalem and do you remember what he did? It's one of two times that the scriptures tell us he did something that was very human. Cried. Jesus wept. Why? Because he looked out at these people that he loved. He'd loved them since before the foundation of the world who had the truth right in front of them and could not see it. And it broke his heart. It didn't make him, like, call fire down on them. That day will come. But until that day comes, on his timetable, not ours, man, we should be broken for those that don't know Jesus. Keep your finger in in 1 Corinthians. I want you to turn a few pages to the right. I want you to go to Ephesians chapter 1, and I want to show you why people can't see. So keep your finger here. We're coming right back to it. Ephesians, so you're going to go past the rest of Corinthians, past the big book of 2 Corinthians. You're going to go past the little book of Galatians. Ephesians Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 18 and 19. I love how Paul says this as he's sharing the gospel. Because that's the first part of Ephesians is Paul sharing the gospel. And he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Do you get what he's saying there? He's saying that the spiritual eyes that you, that you don't have prior to Christ, before the Spirit indwells you, you don't have spiritual eyes of your heart. He says, I pray that, your eyes might be, that the spiritual eyes of your heart might be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. Guys, we need to remember that the world does not have God's eyes. Not yet. And what he does is he uses us to help give it to them. Guys, this, that person that didn't have God's, that, that was my story. I was an atheist for 24 years. God 
kind of pulled me along through that process of becoming, to becoming an agnostic. I've shared my story multiple times up here. But guys, here's the part that I, that I alluded to a minute ago. What is shocking to me as I look back now is how quickly I forgot what blindness felt like. How quickly I went from from thank you, Lord, for the grace that you've shown me in opening my eyes. How, how I went from reading this word and not being able to understand it to reading it and, being, and having it make sense to me to then reading it and going, how come these foolish people out here don't understand it? Wait a minute. Not so very long ago, Doug, you were one of those foolish people that did not understand it. And now you're judging those people for not having their act together and not obeying it. In this same letter that we're in, I want to be turned there. I'm going to have you, it's going to come up on the screen. In the same letter that we're in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And I read it that way on purpose. Because our hearts can easily go there, can't we? We can read all those nasty sins and go, Yeah! Get them, God! Those evil people out there in the world! Except that look at how he finishes the thought. And this, this is his whole point in Corinthians. Guys, you have forgotten who you are. He says, such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. Because who's he writing to? He's writing to the church. He's writing to them. He's writing to us. He's saying, guys, don't forget the glorious mess that apart from grace you still are. And share the good news that has washed you clean despite your mess. So how are we to answer people's tough questions? One, we're to pray that they might have eyes to see. Second, we're to pray that they might have ears to hear. We're going to pick it back up in verse 19. It says, for it is written. Right there, I mean, you just look at that. There's a, like, for it is written. This is a big deal. He's saying, guys, this is the word of God. He's not just saying, generally speaking, people say, he's saying, God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since the wisdom of God, the world, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, guys, the world has been trying to find an answer. Right? Carl Sagan and... Um, um, Stephen Hawkins spent, you know, brilliant men who spent their lives pursuing God out there somewhere. He's saying, those brilliant men pursue God and cannot find him. We will never in our own intelligence find God, is what Paul is saying. Then he says, for indeed, Jews ask for a sign and Greeks search for a wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jew and Greek, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 
Okay, he's saying here in this one paragraph that, that ultimately we're out, we're out listening for answers everywhere we can find them. I mean, you know, our TVs are full of people talking to us. Bookstores are full of people talking to us, trying to fill us with their wisdom. And what, he's, and what Paul is saying here is, is that, that, that God's worst idea, if he could have such a thing, and he can't, God's worst idea is infinitely better than anything the most brilliant man in the world can come up with. Do you get what he's saying? I mean, do you get the power behind what he's saying there? He's saying on your best day, your best thought is nothing to God. And yet we're running around looking everywhere but here for the answers to our specific pro- to our problems. My marriage is not what I want it to be. My, my children are not who I want them to be. My, my whatever. Fill in the blanks. And we're looking all over the place. For the, the, the world is looking all over the place. The church is looking all over the place. Instead of this place, it is written, Paul says. It's God's wisdom, not ours. Do we really think God is better? That's what it comes down to. Guys, we'll share him. Right? We're, this, whole, this whole series is about making disciples, about sharing what we know. It's not just about coming in here and going through this passage, but it's about, okay, so how, how does then this go out there to a world that's asking these questions? Well, we're not going to go out there, and we're not going to share these answers unless we really believe God is better. Do we really believe he is wiser or more wise? Guys, I... I think we do generally in the church. I know I'm preaching to the choir, but here's part of the problem. We tend to apologize for God. When we get asked tough questions, we try, we, we sort of get, re- it's like we're in a prize fight and we're reeling back and we start apologizing for who God is because somebody's sick or hurt or because somebody died. And because those are tough places to be. Believe me, I've been there. I've, ro- I've, dr- I've driven up to a house where someone's son committed suicide and now I'm the one who is supposed to go in there and somehow share something with them that's going to make them feel better. I get it's tough, but what I can't do in that moment is apologize for who God is. He does not need our sympathy. He doesn't. He is the God he is. We just need to tell people who he is. We need to teach people who he is. We need to show people who he is. So pray. Guys, pray that they might have eyes to see and pray that they might have ears to hear. Because we have to, we have to do that remembering who we are, remembering who we were. It's part of in, the, in your, um, I don't know if I have it up here, but in your bulletin there was a little piece of paper, a little square paper that, that on one side of it it talks about um, Ask, admire, admit. It's just a way of engaging with people in the gospel. Right? And, and it's part of what Paul is telling us here. He sa- it's saying, is don't, don't come at them like you have all the answers. Come at them asking, trying to find out about where they're at. Ask them questions about themselves. And then before you jump right into here's why what you think is wrong admire something about what they're saying. Hey, you know what? I just, I love that you're looking. I love that you're searching. I love that you want to read. And then admit, man, here's who I am still and why I need something other than just another book 
another audio, whatever, another, I need the word of God and his wisdom in my life. I need Jesus Christ in my life. Because this isn't just about making my life better. It's about living his life because of what he did for me. Guys, if you're sitting here today and you see him in the word and in your life, or you hear him in the word or in your life, that's him. Like, that's his doing. Praise God for that. And if you have a heart that is open to the things of the gospel, that's him. And we need to pray that God will open the hearts of those people in our lives. Some of them are under your own roof. We need to pray, 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 pray that God will open their hearts. And that's our last point. Pray that they might have hearts to understand. Look at verse 26 through the end of the chapter. I love, <laughs> you know, you guys think, I, mean, I feel like I yell a lot and kind of, you know, shake, wag my finger at you guys a lot. I'm like, and then I look at Paul here and I go, man, you know what? I'm pretty gentle compared to him. He's like, for consider your calling, brethren. He's saying, and brethren is just brothers and sisters in our vernacular. He's like, guys, remember who you were. He says, there are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of this world to shame the things that are strong, and the base things of this world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. Now, I'm tempted to do a word study here and break down what each of these wise and noble mean, but just really quickly, I want to point out to you when he says there are not many wise. Wise means learned, like schooled, educated. So, you know, not many mighty. Mighty means influential in the Greek. In In other words, he said, you are not here in the church because you are the president of the United States. You are not here in the church because you are the CEO of your corporation. You're not, you are not, there was none of you that was influential. And then noble simply means wealthy or of noble birth. He's like, none of you came from great families. None of you are, are the, who's a wealthy family in our nation? I don't even know. The Rothschilds. Were they a wealthy family? I don't know. That's why that name came into my head. I have no idea. But then I love how he, he, all Paul's really doing is he's saying, guys, remember, here's what he's saying. Remember that you were less than nothing. Like, re- remember that you were just the scum of the earth. And then he compares that, and he says, but God chose, like, as if, as if, to, as if to drive the point home, he says, God chose the foolish things. Guys, the Greek word there for foolish, guess what it's translated into? It's where we get the word moron. God chose the morons. Look at, look at, guys, if you're a believer in Christ, look at the person next to you and say, you're a moron. This is one time you get to say it. You're a moron. God chose us like that. Then he says, you are weak. It means, it means to be afflicted. The base things. All that word base means is of low birth. You didn't come from a family that was influential. Guys, the bottom line is what Paul's telling us is how much credit should we get for our wisdom, our strength, our acceptance from Christ. Guys, Christ did not choose me before the foundation of the world or save me as a 24-year-old because I'm all that great. 
Right? If you're in Christ, it, it is, he did not go, man, I really need that one on my team. He didn't. That's not what this word says. In fact, it's just the opposite. How much credit should we take for our Christianity? Guys, if we're out there sharing with the world, you know what, if you were just as smart as me, you would see the truth. Uh, no, that, that is not, one, that's not the truth. And two, it's certainly not going to make friends and influence people for the sake of the gospel. We don't want to even exalt who we are in Christ. We just want to exalt Christ and let him bring them. Our lives are supposed to be living proof for what the gospel will do in a life. Is yours, is mine. Why does God seem to do this, guys? Why does God seem to just really, I mean, it's, it's been true, it wasn't just true in the, in the Corinthian church or in our church where he chooses the base things, the lowly things. He's always done that. Abraham was nothing. That's why he chose him. David was the last boy to be run through Samuel before God said, that's the one that's going to be the king. And oh, by the way, he's going to be um, in the line of my son, Jesus Christ. He was a little shepherd boy. He was the last one they would have picked. Why does God just seem so bulldog tenacious about doing that? Why did he choose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise? Because then he gets all of the glory. When you're, when you're in that moment of fear, as Daniel was talking about, and you're like, eh, I'm not, and, and, and the person you're talking to knows that you don't know really that you're not the person that they're about to see when the Spirit like emboldens you and you step up and you share Christ, and they go, I know, Doug, that's not him. That's, there's no way that was him. That was a supernatural experience. 3,000 people got saved when Peter preaches the gospel the first time. I think, obviously, because the Holy Spirit fell on them, and I think, too, because some of those people knew Peter. And they're like, there is no way this uneducated, unarticulate fisherman just busted out that amazing gospel message on his own. No way. They just had a supernatural um, encounter with God. He always chooses the weak things. He always does. Look at verses 30 and 31. But by his doing you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boast, boast in God. I love how he says that, guys. By, for by his doing, it's all him, you're in Christ. And Christ has become for us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Guys, God is on, most on display in your life when you have nothing else to point to. God is most at display in your life when you have nothing else to point to. So put yourself in places, put yourself in situations where if God doesn't show up, you're doomed. And watch him show up. Just watch. And watch him get the glory. Guys, our best answer is not some apologetics concept. It is the community, the gospel-believing community that he has created. We need to be sharing that. People desperately need this. And I don't just mean this on Sunday morning in this cafeteria. I mean they need real, authentic, Christ-exalting relationship in their life. If, if you are saved, he did not save you that you, would, that you would save your salvation in some little precious vial. 
He saved you that you would share it with a world that needs to hear about the fact that if they don't know him, they're going to hell. Yes, the gospel is exclusive. Jesus Christ is the only way. If you're sitting here today and you don't know him, and part of your, part of your problem is, you know what, it's just one of many religions, I, I, all I can tell you is come talk to me afterwards, because I believe that too once. And two, I would say, guys, take it up with Jesus. He's the one that said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. But he made that invitation to everybody. It includes, it's an invitation to everybody in the world. We need to be the ones who go out and share it. As we take some time now to just respond to the gospel, and the lights come down, the music team's going to come up, I'm going to read. Listen to how the New Living Translation translates verse 30 of the passage we just read. It says, God has united you with Christ Jesus. Christ made us right with God. Jesus made us pure and holy and freed us from sin. Christ made us pure and holy and freed us from sin. So how do we respond to that? Well, one, for you right now, it might be, regardless of where you are with your, in your relationship, it might be just confession. Just lay it down before him. It might be getting up and praying with the couples in the back. It might be getting on your face before the Lord. It might be coming up here at the end of the, at the, end of the service and talking to somebody. It might be for the first time ever in your life understanding what communion that we're about to partake of as part of our response means. It might be crying out to God, God save me. I realize for the first time in my life I've been chasing after answers that I can only find in you. That's how he saved me. 25 years ago, That's how the truth of the gospel became real. God, I've been chasing after answers that can only be found in you. Open my eyes. Unplug my ears. Oh God, change my heart. And Father, I thank you that you did, that, that in your grace, you chose to do it. Lord, I pray right now for people in this room that do not know that grace. They've never tasted of the grace of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would just push their hearts to repentance. Following you is so easy. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe that God saves sinners. Repent and know Christ in your place. That's what you ask us to do. That's what you ask us to believe. We so complicate it. Grace is so amazingly simple. You. So I pray that we would cling to you. In Jesus' name.